Brandon, how did you feel? When? During it. I don't know, really. I don't remember feeling very much of anything. Until his body went limp, and I knew it was over. And then? Then? I felt tremendously exhilarated. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 74, which is Cole's choice, and I think this is going to be a little bit of a special one. It is. But before we get into the film, I have kind of a big announcement to make. As of sitting down to record this episode, I am now a full-time podcaster. It is my only job. Just a few days ago, I left the bookstore after almost 11 years. In part because I thought it was time to take a chance on this. And I have to say thanks to you first. Because when I brought this up to you, your first, last, and only response was, Do what makes you happy. How can I help? I'm really excited for you. I think this is going to be a cool new adventure, regardless of how it turns out. Well, I had no doubt that that's what you would say, but I want you to know how grateful I am for always being able to count on you. So now, for at least a year, I'm going to do what I can to try to grow the show, to reach more people, and try to make more cinema-loving friends. Are we going on a cross-country barnstorming tour, (laughs) skywriting... It will be probably limited to what I can do from behind the keyboard and whatever happens in Austin. Who knows, though? We may travel. It's wide open. I've got nothing but time. So for at least a year, I'm going to be my own boss. I love doing this show with you, and I think we do a good job here, and if only more people heard it, they would jump on board. So that's my goal. Give myself a year and see how far we can take this thing. Maybe even make it something that you and or I can make a living at. And that doesn't mean that anything will change if this coming year isn't as successful as we hope. We'll continue doing the show no matter how that turns out. That's just the window I've given myself to devote exclusively to this. But if things do go in our favor, we have some other plans in the works, ideas for other shows. If we are able to devote our time exclusively to podcasts, then we are definitely going to start producing more of them. I think one of them is going to be when we turn on the Food Network and I just talk smack about everybody. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Dibs on Alton Brown. <laughs> what do you have against Alton Brown? He's like a weird baby bird. He's so strangely aggro, that guy. Yeah, he's. there's some things going on. At any rate, here is where listeners can help with all that. Since this is kind of a momentous occasion for us, I'm going to put this information and appeal right up at the front of the show and hopefully get this experiment started off on the right foot. The biggest thing that people can do to help is simply tell people about the show. Do you know someone who likes movies? Do you know someone who likes podcasts? Do you know someone who likes movie podcasts? If you could, please let them know about us. Word of mouth and recommendations from friends is the single most effective way that people find out about podcasts. If you think they would like the films we talk about, tell them. If you think they would find our voices soothing, tell them. I listen to plenty of shows just to fall asleep, so there is nothing wrong with that if that's the angle. The other big way that people can help is through supporting the Patreon, and that's at patreon.com slash magiclantern. You can go there, click become a patron, and choose a support level that is good for you. 
There are all kinds of perks like bonus content, cool enamel pins, commentary tracks that we produce especially for you, and more. At this point, we have over 20 bonus episodes, so there's a really fun backlog, I think, that you could dive right into. And you can just set your monthly pledge and forget about it. If what we do here is entertaining and or edifying enough that you think it's worth a soda a month, a cup of coffee a month, or if you just want to think of it like a digital tip jar, support at any level is greatly appreciated. And if you've been thinking during episodes past, you know, I should get around to doing that sometime, now would be a wonderful time to show that support and get this coming year kicked off on a high note. We're really proud of being a listener-supported show, and we're grateful for everything our community does, whether that's tweeting with us about their favorite films, telling their friends about us, or kicking in a couple of bucks to keep the old lantern lit. Okay, there it is. Our one and only pledge drive right there, pretty painless, so let's talk about the movie. And that movie this time is Rope, from 1948. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring John Dahl, Farley Granger, James Stewart, Joan Chandler, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Constance Collier, Douglas Dick, Edith Evanson, and Dick Hogan. Hume Cronin adapted this from Patrick Hamilton's play of the same name, and Arthur Lawrence wrote the screenplay. It's about two young men who strangle a former classmate to death as an intellectual exercise to demonstrate their superiority in the commission of the perfect crime, and then throw a dinner party for his friends and family as his body sits hidden in the chest in the center of the room. The crime committed in the play and the film is loosely based upon the real-life case of Leopold and Loeb, two wealthy students at the University of Chicago who kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old boy in 1924 for reasons of twisted intellectual rigor similar to those that are cited here. Finally, it's my turn for my favorite Hitchcock. You've done two already. I feel a little bad that this is the third episode devoted to a single director already, and that we haven't yet done Cassavetes, Denis, Herzog, Bergman, and on and on. We'll get to all those and more eventually, I promise, but this one is a true desert island selection for me, a movie I do not want to live without. Would you put this one in your desert island backpack ahead of Shadow of a Doubt? I absolutely would. This is my all-time favorite Hitchcock. This is up there with A Woman Under the Influence and The Old Dark House rotating top three or four. Do you remember when you first discovered Hitchcock's body of work? I know you did, Rebecca, as our very first episode. Was that the first one you encountered? It wasn't, and I really don't have a clear memory of the very first Hitchcock I got to. I've mentioned this many times over the course of the show, and we'll continue to come back to it, but it all comes back to my mother, which is very appropriate for Hitchcock. <laughs> it all came down to what she may have decided to show me that day, or what was on TV. I probably saw something like Suspicion or the earlier films like Rebecca before I came to many of his later choices, but I definitely jumped in and out of his filmography. So there was probably nothing about the order that you encountered them in that drew you further down the rabbit hole? I don't think I followed any sort of theme. It would mostly be what was available to me at the moment, what I felt more in tune with at the time, or what was exciting me, much like how we choose our episodes for this show. Well, like a number of people, I'm sure, I went through the major canon initially, including the two you chose for episodes. I saw Psycho first, and then The Birds, followed by a number of the other heavy hitters, Rebecca, Notorious, North by Northwest, the later version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, 
But then I discovered there were these other more odd little films lurking around the margins of his filmography. And when I found this one, Hitchcock at his most experimental, I knew I had found the one that was speaking directly to me. And not just because I want to decide who lives and who dies. The twin draw of his experimentation and the subject matter sealed the deal. True crime is definitely a draw. And coincidentally, this is my second selection to be associated with a real-life trial of the century, the other being Inherit the Wind, and both having the connection of Clarence Darrow as an attorney. So those are the things that make it perfectly tailored for me. Is it a similar situation for you with its stage roots and all? Is it a natural for you to gravitate towards being a play first? I don't think I realized it was a play when I first saw it. I think I came to it mostly through that Darrow angle again, a bit like you. I'm a little surprised that you say you didn't realize it was a play first because it feels so stage-bound. You know, I think it's easy often to forget a specific period in American or the world stage. Those plays are not produced as often these days. So unless you happen to be going through the Drama Desk Library, you may not realize that. For example, Dial M for Murder was also a play. I do remember, though, the very first time I watched this, I did feel like it was stage-bound. However, that went away immediately with the second and every subsequent viewing of this. I don't know if it's because of the beauty of finding more things the more you watch something. Being able to not focus on plot so much as to how this thing is made. So now, though experimental it may have been, it feels really alive to me. Well, let's get right into it. I love this song that the orchestra is making a nod to in the opening titles. It is one of my three absolute favorite uses of music in film. It's Francis Poulenc's Movement Perpetuelle Number 1, and it is the perfect accompaniment to this film as it unfolds. It takes these unexpected dark melodic turns for a piece so brisk and so short, and it's a wonderful musical metaphor for the way our killer's surface charm quickly turns rancid. Plus, it feels inescapable with its repetition. It's Philip's guilt, horror, and inevitable fate all manifesting itself through his playing. You know, you've really given me a new appreciation for this because the first thing I wrote down was that it feels, to me, almost out of place, a little too much melodrama. But now I'm hearing those dark turns, and it makes me just want to go right back to it again. Well, this orchestral version that bookends the film... That strikes me as a little different. That is a more syrupy, melodramatic rendition of this. When it gets to just the bare bones of Farley Granger playing, which he did, Hitchcock had him learn how to play the piece. It's then that it is providing so much subtext and interplay with what's happening on screen. Notable, Philip is not a musician in the play. I think that was an interesting choice on Hitchcock's part to sort of suffuse his personality with artistic sensitivity, quote-unquote. Right. Using those covers that we've seen so much in the history of film in general, of the artist, of the intellectual, as code for gay. Not everyone was intrigued by this piece the way I am. Poulenc, as well as his critical contemporaries, considered the piece lightweight. He thought it would not be what he was remembered for. A stroll by the Seine is how he thought of it. But the way it's employed here gives it a grim darkness that echoes one of James Stewart's speeches at the end of the film when he says, You've given my words a meaning I've never dreamed of. Poulenc is also one of those great examples of connections and layers, tangential and otherwise, that we love to point out on the show. 
He was a member of Lay Six, that group of composers that Jean Cocteau influenced that you mentioned in our Beauty and the Beast episode. He was also openly gay, and whether or not that factored explicitly into Hitchcock's choice, it certainly adds layers to the music's relation to the characters. Both because of its creator and the way that the piece flew directly in the face of the norms of classical tonal music. It seems like it could not have possibly been an accident. Hitchcock didn't make accidents. He carefully considered things too much for that to be the case. Do you have certain specific musical examples that are on your top of the pops as far as how they interact with a film that resonate with you, that haunt you the way this does me and my other choices? Am I allowed to include in this list the scene in Werewolf when the werewolf is going through a transformation and only when he turns off the radio do we know it was radio music the whole time? Werewolf, that's an all-time classic, right? That's one of the pantheon of... Yes, werewolf. We all know what it is. <laughs> you mean warwolf? Werewolf. Or am I allowed to include the part in Final Justice when the person on the radio is somehow speaking directly to the Texas Rangers? One, is that music? Two, are all of these going to be MST3K related? Two of the six are. You have six choices? No, I don't really. I've just had so much MST3K on my mind since our Creature from the Black Lagoon episode, I couldn't resist. I would also put up there another of our episodes, There Will Be Blood. But the one I'm thinking about most, which is by no means an exhaustive study, is Rushmore. So you veer from Johnny Greenwood's Hornets in My Brain to the carefully curated 45 collection of Wes Anderson. Exactly. Well, my other two favorites, I mentioned I have three. Girl of My Dreams from all throughout Angel Heart, the definitive version of which is played by Glenn Gray and the Casa Loma Orchestra, and Bo Harwood's Rainy Fields of Frost and Magic from that scene where Ben Gazzara is auditioning the dancer in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. It breaks my heart every time. You know, I might also throw Blue Velvet in there, probably. Okay, before Casey Kasem gets in here, the action opens with an establishing shot of an apartment building, and then a scream, and then silence. Cut to the interior, and we are confronted with the image of a man being strangled, held up between two other men, well-dressed men, in a well-appointed apartment, clearly not street criminals. And, file this away for later, it's the character we come to know as Philip that is doing the actual strangling here. And we now navigate the tricky dynamics of the conspirators' relationship in a series of quick but telling movements. For example, we might take Philip to be the dangerous one, the one clearly able to commit murder, but it's clearly demonstrated that that's not the case. He's not the one we have to worry about. Everything from the post-act cigarette to his hesitancy to open the blinds to Brandon taking his gloves off for him shows us exactly who is in charge. We quickly find out that Brandon is the mastermind, the manipulator here. Philip has to ask for permission to have a drink, after all. I'm not a gigantic Farley Granger fan, but even if I were, it's John Dahl here all the way as Brandon who really makes the film. Watching him talk about how the Davids of this world, David is our just-murdered friend, merely take up space. And while considering their victim's last drink, Brandon can't help but get in a dig at Harvard. He clearly has the boorish manners of a Yaley. And Brandon's mechanism here is also glib deflection and justification, and Phillips is just outright panic. One of these guys is simply along for the ride. 
murder can be an art too is what drives Brandon as he never had abilities in other artistic arenas and he thinks he's done a masterful job. In his estimation, which we will see as a defining personality trait, nothing has gone wrong and he overestimates his abilities and by extension their abilities as a criminal team. He also puts a lot of stock in being frightening and he enjoys the perceived power that it gives him over Philip and everyone else or so he thinks. I wonder how he ever could have imagined getting away with this with a partner like Philip. Or is it just that he overestimates himself so much that he compensates in his mind that even Philip's shortcomings could never possibly bring him down? No, his main concern right now is not breaking up the crystal, even though he would dearly love to save the last tumbler that David had his final drink out of. And this is one of the things that hooked me way back when. I am frequently fascinated by the macabre possibilities of ordinary household objects. A particular tumbler being the last thing a person would ever drink from. Seemingly innocent gloves or a piece of rope in a drawer. They take on significance undreamt of when you know they're evidence of a homicide. Do you think of this stuff when you wander through the antique mall? Hmm, I guess some farmer at some point needed a sack of doorknobs. Or a vintage ice pick with a curious history, one dollar. Or just drawer after drawer of old photos of potential victims. Okay, you can stop now. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think of those things or what in my house might already be there that is killing me. I also don't think of that obvious rush and exhilaration and defiance that Brandon is showing by gleefully planning this party. And how not only does he plan to not cover up the crime specifically, but almost flaunt it by showcasing the trunk that the body is in in basically the middle of the room. He plays it cool for the most part, but there's one moment when it's just the two of them right before the action really kicks in. How did you feel? Philip asks him in that scene that we did for our opening scene. And for a moment, he lays back, but then he is completely unable to push down his quivering, nearly orgasmic response. If their relationship wasn't already clear, it should be now. This dissection of the act is post-coital pillow talk. Just one of many instances to come where they exhibit an intimacy of both shared lives and the positioning of just sheer physical closeness that you didn't see between two men on movie screens very often in 1948. At least two men that weren't gladiators. But you're right. Brandon changes the plan to serve supper from the chest containing David's body. As we see time and time again, he cannot resist himself. He can't keep from demonstrating to himself just how clever he is. If this were a contemporary crime, people would say that it fits the profile of the killer that wants to be caught. How much stock do you put in that idea? At this point, with as much true crime as I get secondhand from you, I think I'm ready to believe most any pathology. But in this specific instance, it seems like the killers want to be recognized and adored rather than caught. Caught would to me suggest culpability rather than justification. That is a fine distinction that you make there. That is a very good point. I absolutely agree. And I think that the killer that wants to be caught, with the exception of a few cases where criminals actually said so, is a complete myth. Killers want to kill and keep killing. I think that if they go undetected and successfully continue to kill, they begin to think that they can't be caught and they make mistakes from being careless. But that is a far cry from wanting to be caught. That is narcissism and arrogance, characteristics Brandon has no shortage of. 
The pathology to me suggests that if they had gotten away with this, there is no way that David would have been their last or only victim. Luckily for society at large, though, they are not as perfect as Brandon thinks. We see the rope hanging from the chest before they do, a nice little teasing bit of Hitchcock's suspense, and when Philip finally notices it, he is completely shaken. If I have said it once, I have said it a million times, never do a crime that you cannot do on your own. Which of us here is which, do you think? Who is Philip? Who is Brandon? Uh, excuse me. Are you trying to cast me as that weak-willed Philip, or are you saying that I am the upcoming character, Mrs. Atwater? Maybe later, after this show, we can go to the movies and you can take me to see the something of the something. I want to see that new one with, you know, that guy in the something. Well, we get our first example through here, when Hitchcock pushes in close on a character's back, of one of these experimental elements, one of these trick cuts he used to make it appear as if the film was shot in one long take. The film plays out in almost real time, which is not only a more compelling, immersive experience, but it amplifies some of these ironies of circumstance and dialogue to outrageous, even comical degrees. There are a few things I want to get into right here, if that's okay. Okay. One, I want to talk about that experimentation and the theatrical aspect of this. I've never really understood why people don't like this to the degree that we do. Is that because I do come from that theater background that I revel in that idea of watching suspense play out in front of me? Because I want to see everyone on. I like to feel that theatrical experience replicated here, which means that at any moment somebody could do something unexpected. That we as the audience are trapped, and so are the characters. It reminds me quite a bit of the play No Exit by Sartre. And now on to the second piece, about the experimentation itself. Even though he created these shots to run continuously for up to 10 minutes without interruption, even though it's shot on this single set, even though these camera movements were so carefully planned and there was almost no editing, requiring about 15 days of rehearsal by everyone. That's cast and crew together? That's right. So even with all of these experimental elements, and even though Hitchcock may have even thought of it as a gimmick almost, I don't. I feel the power of this film regardless of how it was created, and in many ways because of specifically how it was created. I certainly don't like to feel as though he was patronizing or mocking us, but I'm all in when it comes to this film. There's that great story about because of this rehearsal and because of how everyone knew exactly where they needed to be at all times, exactly how the walls of the set would have to move, how the props would have to move, at one point a camera operator's foot was broken by a dolly running over it. And instead of stopping because they knew they would just have to start from the beginning, somebody basically gagged him so that they could keep going. I know that it really got to everyone. People were terrified of doing anything wrong. So much so that even James Stewart finally said, why don't you just put seats in here and sell tickets? And ultimately, all of this work makes me feel completely complicit and excited by what I'm watching and repulsed at the same time. The last point I wanted to make about the experimentation is all about the use of Technicolor. This was Hitchcock's first color film, and he settled for a color palette that is not particularly very visually stimulating, but I look at that as a positive, that instead of having a feast for the eyes, I instead look at the color in Brandon's face. 
His blue suit, elements of the other characters that we'll meet, like Rupert Cadell's gray hair or Janet's red dress, or a specific use of neon at the very end. I'm going to throw a vote in here also for the use of diegetic music as one of those experimental elements, except for the title and credit sequences. The use of that goes a long way toward immersion as well. So we have the return of Mrs. Wilson, their housekeeper, and she discovers that her nicely laid dinner table has been supplanted by this new ceremonial altar. Ooh boy, this thing is rife with potential readings. Just the Catholic angle alone is enough to fill the rest of the podcast. In a bit, we'll get to almost seeing a trinity happening over it as well. In addition to that, you have ritual consumption taking place over it. Specifically, the symbolic devouring of heterosexual masculinity. This chest is a veritable Pandora's box of themes. Is there a lot of pouting that also takes place in Catholicism? Because Philip is all over that. I don't know if there's a lot of pouting that goes on, but he is certainly way into the ceremonial wine. He is deep in those cups by the time we get to the end of this thing. But during this conversation with Mrs. Wilson, Philip finds out that Rupert Cadell, their old schoolmaster, is coming to the party. Once again, thoroughly shaken. He thinks that Rupert is the one person that can unravel this whole thing. The one person on their wavelength. And Brandon partially agrees, but ultimately comes to the conclusion that Rupert is too fastidious to have joined in on the plan. He could have invented and admired, but never acted. Brandon is a really keen observer in the way that manipulators often are. He can quickly size up who can be used to what ends. It is a pity for him that his weakness is that those powers of observation get clouded when it comes to self-assessment. Well, he's chosen those first two guests to arrive, I think, very specifically as those pawns that he's about to use in this game that he's playing. And the first is Kenneth. Dullsville. 100%. The epitome of school chum. Kenneth is David's best friend. And we learn also has a history with Janet, who is the next to arrive. She is David's girl. She's actually the ex of Brandon, the ex of Kenneth, and though she doesn't know it yet, now the ex of David, unfortunately. I find this character so repulsive. She eventually lets her guard down a bit, but this act as if she is 50 years old and is, in reality, in her very early 20s, to be so tedious. Her expression of, thanks, chum, makes me want to wring her neck. I think that's interesting, though, in the context of the female observer of the homosexual friends and the way she is insinuating herself using the masculine term that they use to refer to each other. But, yes, she did spray on a liberal dose of, oh, they try too hard. She is shallow and vain. I'm with you, though. She is completely unappealing and unsympathetic. To go back to Mrs. Wilson for just a moment, I thought it was really funny that the actress did her job so well that the other actors off-screen essentially treated her as if she was the help. (laughs) But so far, we don't have really any paragons of the female species. And Hitchcock being Hitchcock, I don't know that we'll see any necessarily. They have a brief discussion of Rupert the schoolmaster here, and it is clear that the murderers are obviously the most interesting people in the room, not just because they're killers. It's typical of the type of foul trick that Hitchcock likes to play on the audience in terms of allegiances and complicity of the viewer. You side with Norman Bates early on in Psycho, for example. But we're not given much to attach ourselves to, even in terms of who we would like to have a conversation with at this party. And then Mr. Kentley and Mrs. Atwater arrive. 
And there's a great little bit of comic business that Mrs. Wilson does here where she is just slightly too familiar. And you see very much that reaction that you were talking about where they want to be free of this irritation. I really respond to the character of Mr. Kentley. He seems very kind and considered a person who you could have a normal conversation with. Mrs. Atwater there for some comic relief, as you mentioned. And I think that the unseen Mrs. Kentley is also an interesting character. She was too ill, it is suggested, to come to this party. And I think suggested that she's basically a hypochondriac, or in the terms of the time, a hysterical. But maybe I'm interpolating that. Did you get that same sense? I did get that a little bit. I also like the way that it slightly echoes... Philip's arc as we go through it. The more unwound he becomes, the more unstrung Mrs. Kentley becomes. If there's a hysterical in this relationship, it is clearly Philip. I think what intrigues me the most with these different female characters that we get, three seen, one unseen, is that they represent a kind of stupidity overall. Hitchcock's much ballyhooed misogyny on display, I think, there. And we'll get into a little bit here at the end when I get to the wrap-up about whether the homophobia equals that. But for right now, as everyone has finally arrived and is gathering in the doorway, Mr. Kentley mistakes Kenneth for David and calls him by his name, causing Philip to break his glass and cut himself. Philip needs to just get it together. Philip eventually ends up at the piano and begins to play that beautiful song, which heralds Rupert's arrival. And Brandon is right. Finally, someone interesting. He's clever, witty, calls out other guests' banality in his own subtle way, and significantly, he completely upends the power structure of this gathering. Brandon, moments ago at the top of this food chain, finds himself reflexively back in the role of pupil at the master's feet seeking approval. Complete with that hint of a stutter that he gets when he's excited. The first time I saw this, that was the first time I was aware of Jimmy Stewart with an edge. Before that, to me, he is always just that G-aw-shucks guy. And I love him in this mode. Do you deserve justice? He asks Janet. It's brilliant. His mind and his responses are moving too quickly for everyone else to keep up with. Asking questions that catch people off guard and make them uncomfortable. One of the complaints I hear most often about this that people can't connect to is that Stuart was miscast. And I think that is a load of tripe, personally. He was intellectually nimble enough for the beginning here. His personality is pragmatic enough to denote a division between him and the socialites. And when the time comes to deliver his Mr. Smith takes Brandon and Philip to Sing Sing speech at the end, who could have done that better? That's very true. And I think maybe people are quibbling a little bit too much with his reversal, is it a reversal, which we will get to, rather than his portrayal of. At least that's my opinion. You read about it being tossed around that Cary Grant could have possibly been a potential for this, but he is too much like the other two. There needs to be that separation for this thing to go the way it does. Speaking of Cary Grant, there's a fun little nod here in the conversation to Notorious, known as simply something in this case. But the party conversation starts in earnest here and quickly takes a dark turn. I'm fascinated by this section. There's the story of why Philip doesn't eat chicken. Whether or not he could have wrung a specific chicken's neck at Brandon's mother's farm in Connecticut, which we also learn that Rupert has been to as well. This is the first thing that pricks Rupert's ears up. He takes definite note of the intensity of Philip's reaction to this. Apparently, Philip has a history as a strangler. Go figure. But one of the things I love about this is that the most explosive part of the exchange takes place off-screen. 
There's another significant section where the discussion is taking place while we are looking at something else, but this is the first time we see that. And I was thinking about this in light of what Bob Fosse said about Sweet Charity and how on stage the audience gets to decide what to look at, but on film, you decide. Rope has very little in the way of what you would call traditional editing, only 10 cuts altogether, but that does not mean there wasn't a very strict editorial approach to its creation. Hitchcock doesn't make a move without careful consideration and canny manipulation of both character and audience. And it's a wonderful choice that he uses Jimmy Stewart as the amiable guide to lead us into this musing on who should be murdered and who should not be. And before we get there, I did want to throw something else in that I didn't touch upon earlier. And that's how fascinating I find the camera itself constantly moving in and around and back and forth and still never feeling stagey to me. But as you mentioned, back to the action, we're getting positively Nietzschean. Rupert says that he does, in fact, approve of murder. It would solve so many things. And he does invoke that idea of murder should be an art for superior people over inferior people. And the person I'm watching is Mr. Kentley the whole time, getting more and more agitated. Everyone finds it amusing but him. He is the lone holdout here. And how jarring it felt for someone to say the name Hitler. Quite the party conversationalist, Brandon. Awkward. Rupert, though, I think has the good sense and the humanity to try to break that mood a little bit when he does see how agitated Mr. Kentley is. And he is extremely agitated. This morbidity is troubling to him, as is this notion of superiority. He condemns Brandon's contempt for humanity. And it seems to me like all of his responses, I think, are unconsciously driven by his anxiety over his missing son. If David was there with him, I don't think that he would have responded so vociferously to this. I think about the pairing of Brandon and Philip and what that brings out in Philip. And then there's the pairing of Mr. and Mrs. Kentley. Having that voice of hysteria in your ear seems like it would really get to you after a while. And while this is happening, Ken and Janet take a moment to go away separately and talk about her embarrassment of being here with him. That we now know that it was Ken who broke up with Janet, and how it's David who actually saved her. And so finally, she's displaying an emotion that feels real. I relax with David is how she frames it, which you can genuinely see. She has let the guard down. And so even though I mentioned that the women are a bit stupid, it's Janet who does feel that something is up, that Brandon is doing something, even possibly that he may have prevented David from coming here. To her credit, Janet figures it out before Rupert even does. Without Janet, Rupert doesn't latch onto this. And just a quick note here before we wrap this section up about how the female characters are being treated, we have an instance here where Brandon specifically tries his Rupert-esque humor on Mrs. Atwater, and it just comes off as snide. It's not charming whatsoever. Another example that he is not the wit he considers himself to be. Can I take a second and talk about this backdrop too, before we go on to anything else? This thing is incredible. Clouds of spun glass, lazily drifting, smokestacks billowing, the sky darkening. It is a remarkable achievement. This cyclorama was, at the time, the largest, most complicated backdrop ever used on a soundstage. It was an exact miniature reproduction of nearly 35 miles of New York City skyline, lighted by 8,000 incandescent bulbs and 200 neon signs, requiring 150 transformers. This backdrop is power. 
literally and figuratively. 26,000 feet of wire carried 126,000 watts for the building and window illumination. And this is penthouse living, looking down on everyone. A world away, for example, from the courtyard we would see in Rear Window just a few years later. So this wouldn't be the last time Jimmy Stewart was playing detective for Alfred Hitchcock. This was their first film together, the first of four. We have another of those exciting breaks. And Rupert is almost quizzing Mrs. Wilson as she is dropping hints about how tense everything was. The thing that I key on here is that she is describing moving the dinner setting as just a whim. Rupert knows that whim is not Brandon's way. Again, that modern detective of noting how a change in pattern can signal something very deep. Rupert's not the type to keep his curiosities to himself, and he is incisive enough to zero in on the weak link, Philip. He starts pumping him for information at the piano. Brandon knows where David is, right? The second time Philip lied this evening. Philip is going to be a mess on the stand. This is never going to work. Do you think that James Stewart as Rupert Cadell could have figured out who the Zodiac Killer was? <laughs> Possibly. If the Zodiac was as big a bundle of nerves as Philip is anyway. And when they're having this conversation, Mr. Kentley comes out of the dining room with a bundle of books from Brandon, which Brandon has bound with the rope. A clumsy way of tying them up, Philip says, another one of Brandon's touches that he cannot resist. Now we have another great visual section. This deep focus of Mrs. Wilson going in and out of the room, clearing away everything that's on the chest, bringing the books in from the other room, back and forth, back and forth, little by little as everyone is discussing where David is, she blows out the candles, she takes off the tablecloth, and she goes to lift the lid of the chest. This is a great bit of suspense, the old show the audience the bomb under the chair bit. And this is that second instance of the conversation taking place off screen that I was referring to. So you get this mounting suspense visually as she is disassembling this altar, but you also get this agitation rising and rising among the gathered. Brandon steps in just in time to prevent her from opening it. And even though he is off screen for most of that bit, I completely imagine him watching carefully, completely torn by the desire to just let everyone assembled see how clever and powerful and frightening he is, just so he can drink in the looks on their faces when they open that chest, and finally deciding and waiting only until the very last second to shut it down. Mrs. Kentley has gotten so upset at this point that Mr. Kentley has no other choice but to go to her. Everyone else decides that they're going to go along as well, and we have what for me is my absolute favorite clue. Rupert gets handed a hat, and it's the wrong size. And when he sees the initials in the hat, he knows that everything has been a lie up to this point. Yes, they absolutely saw David before the party, and he probably never left this room. The worry about David is overwhelming. And finally, everyone leaves. It's over. Nope. This final act, I really enjoy how Philip begins to assert himself, albeit with the help of alcohol. He is a tempest of regret, fear, and guilt, and he is spinning more and more out of control with every passing second. And during this argument, Philip nails what a narcissistic, arrogant sociopath Brandon is. Philip is clearly weak. On paper, he would be a victim for Brandon, I think. But you were starting to allude to this earlier. I think their romantic relationship led Brandon to give him too much leeway, and he lifted him up to the level of Nietzsche and Superman strictly by association a weakness of his own that I'm sure Brandon would find a way to rationalize. 
I don't think that anyone would contradict that this was Hitchcock's film with the most gay subtext, right? Do you think? I'm quickly trying to scroll through the catalog and I can't come up with another one. It was not uncommon for him to nod to LGBTQ issues and characters, albeit in a strictly coded way, but this one is the central film as far as how much it addresses that in his filmography. And there are things big and small. There are subtle things in this film that I think a gay audience at the time would have caught that a straight audience might not have. Where's the telephone, for instance, when Janet goes to make a call? In the bedroom. Right. Not a bedroom. The bedroom. One bedroom shared in an apartment by two men. Audiences are, with any luck, both more savvy and tolerant these days, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how you perceive the effect of these coded inclusions. There's the obvious big problem of the fact that they're murderers. First, if you are gay in 1948 and longing for representation on screen, your choices are limited, to say the least, and you finally get two attractive, articulate, well-dressed guys that you can somewhat relate to, and they turn out to be homicidal, spouting Nietzschean ideology. You know, I think it cuts a little both ways. In one respect, which we'll get to a little bit more in this final act, really, it wasn't being homosexual that corrupted them. It was this other influence. However, you could also read that influence as almost a sexual predator grooming younger men to serve his lifestyle. I think overall we're supposed to come back to, just like with Leopold and Loeb, that it was this Nietzschean sensibility that was worse somehow. Right. That isn't to say, obviously, gay folks don't commit murder. They do. This was based on a real case. But I'm just sure that in 1948, it would have been nice if that was but one of several instances of representation instead of one of the few, the others all likely being shameful in some way. Well, as you mentioned in a previous episode, it's not called woke rope. It certainly also complicates matters that the murder and its aftermath are essentially one long sex scene. The guilt, the request to keep the lights off, the cigarette, the handing off of the champagne bottle to get that cork popped, and whether he meant to or not, conflates gay sex with murderous deviance. They're also hiding. They could have put that body in a closet and it would have been a little more on the nose. There have been thousands of words written about Hitchcock's homophobia versus his radical inclusion and sensitivity towards gay characters, his own potential repressed homosexuality, etc. And I am convinced of only one thing after reading all of this, his absolute ambivalence toward the topic. I look at his position and his approach as opportunistic, and he would employ whatever was necessary to put the audience where he wanted them, regardless of your orientation. It was definitely an interesting choice after this period of working for studios and now out on his own. I look at it as giving the middle finger to practically everyone. Especially you, David O. Selznick. And I find it so interesting what Hume Cronin talked about in terms of this adaptation that Everyone knew that this film was full of, in quotes, it, but you weren't allowed to say what it was. But it was obviously potent enough to get the film banned in many theaters. I find the use of the murder as sex to be kind of invigorating, oddly. No kink shaming here. I'm into whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. I look at it as almost a plus that it's sort of like seizing the idea rather than being ashamed of it so it starts to feel even more radical. It does make me wonder about something that is an unknowable and unanswerable at this point. 
We mentioned Leopold and Loeb. They were lovers, famously, openly so. Do you think they would have been up for the death penalty if they had not been gay? I think so. Let's talk a little bit about them since that's where we are here. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, just teenagers themselves at the time, kidnapped and killed 14-year-old Bobby Franks in 1924 just to prove to themselves that they could commit the perfect crime. Like our pair here, they woefully overestimated their abilities, as privileged sociopaths are wont to do. Leopold accidentally left his glasses at the scene where they dumped the body, and those glasses could be traced to a single Chicago optometrist, so it didn't take long for their perfect crime to unravel. Pathologically immature is how one official described them, and I think that nails it. Their sexual orientation was obviously used in the trial against them by the prosecutors, calling them cowardly perverts. But I don't think that that was the crux of the issue for the death penalty. I think it's the fact that it was a 14-year-old child. And I think whether they were straight, gay, or anything else in between, the death penalty still would have been sought for that reason. I think also the level of callousness displayed and our inability to confront and make sense of that callousness. It's a good thing that they had Clarence Darrow to go to bat for them and kind of mask, cover, erase all that. It may be the only good choice they made in their entire lives, retaining his services. You should check out the closing statement he made in that case. I don't know if I have that kind of time. Absolutely. He's known to go on for hours and hours. It is 12 hours long, that final statement that closing argument. It moved people to tears. I believe it. Maybe they were also just completely wound down. I'll just mention a bit of it. I am pleading that we overcome cruelty with kindness and hatred with love. I am pleading for the future. I am pleading for a time when hatred and cruelty will no longer control the hearts of men. When we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all in life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute of man. Which is certainly not a sentiment that Brandon or Philip would espouse. No, they're too busy right now trying to figure out how to get rid of a body. Mrs. Wilson leaves and the phone rings just as they are about to draw the curtain and put David down in the car. Rupert has invented an excuse to come back. There's a pivotal phrase early in this scene for me, and not just in terms of the way it works in the movie, but the way it has worked in my entire life. Brandon tells Rupert, you often pick words for sound rather than meaning. This was such a revolutionary concept to me when I first heard this character say it when I was young. Precision in language was, and still is, such an important thing to me that this knocked me off my axis a little bit when I was confronted with this idea. I had never heard it quite put like that before. And the idea fascinated me that there could be more than one way to be linguistically precise. I still think about this line all the time. And so they continue to joust. Brandon can't help himself. He wants Rupert to reflect his own brilliance back at him. But Philip is beyond the point of no return here. Cat and mouse, cat and mouse. Rupert points out Brandon's gun, saying you're carrying fear of discovery in your pocket. Now that gun, even though it plays a specific role later is the only thing I don't really like. It feels like Brandon is at a level of out of control that doesn't seem real for him. Well, this old thing, he doesn't need it anyway. He makes an excuse for carrying it, tosses it aside. But Rupert has one final card to play, and he produces the rope from his pocket. And Philip breaks down, essentially spills his guts right then and there. All Philip can say is, he knows. 
he and Rupert wrestle somewhat for the gun, and it goes off. And Rupert uses it as that device of, get over to the other side of the room. And he lifts the lid on the chest. He has to look inside. He has to confirm, hopefully, in the negative, his suspicions. But his face is a mask of true horror when he sees what has taken place here. All of these things running through his head, all of these things that he said about the lives of inferior beings, Brandon throws it right back at him, asks him, do you remember when we talked about this? And he has a look on his face for a moment when he says, yes, I remember, where maybe he's teetering on the brink. Does he join them right here? Does he go over to their side? I don't think it could ever get that complex and interesting. But what he says here is the thing that I like the most. You've thrown my own words back in my face and you were right to. As much as I have a difficult time with this reversal, I think he really sells it. Because for much of this, you could see him as an intellectual without maybe a lot of emotional experience. When he talks about this obligation to society that he's finally getting an understanding of, I do believe him. For someone like that, maybe it takes something so severe to make him realize the folly of what he's been saying all along. But he realizes there's something in you that would let you do this that would never let me do this thing. I'm with you. There are a couple of things in this speech that I do like, that he specifically points out the cruelty of serving food from this boy's grave. That is an effective image. But going into this bit about society and what society is going to do loses me. I agree, though. I do think it's interesting that before that point, as he is accused of, it could be all words. And in that, he is more alike to Janet. And now he seems to be actually thinking. But then when he goes full-on judge, jury, and executioner saying, society is going to do this to you, and I can help, and that they're going to die because of this crime, it goes a little overboard. It just makes me question how much time, attention, and credit Rupert would have given Brandon all along the way, because it is frequently so easy to sniff out someone who so obviously thinks himself smarter than he actually is. People tell you everything about themselves if you pay close attention. And we are led to believe that Rupert is the type that would have paid close attention. I'm inclined to side with the quote, deviant, unquote, in this case. This was an act of desire and pleasure, cloaked in a veneer of intellectual rigor. I can relate. Occasionally feeling like ordinariness is a crime deserving of punishment. I can relate. And we're watching this movie for pleasure. To enjoy a drawing room puzzle, not for conservative moralizing. So this rings a little hollow as a coda. I believe that he's angry not because he objects so much to the murder as much as he's just been exposed as a hypocrite. But I do agree with you. He does that one thing that I absolutely love when he talks about a man should stand by what he professes to believe. He must have been incredibly naive to not grasp the full import of what he'd been saying all those years and the impact it would have had on impressionable young charges. As a side note, I think you hinted at it just slightly earlier, the movie studiously avoids with all its coding that the play tells us that Rupert is gay as well and had relationships with his students. That's why he was at mom's house. And that certainly adds a patina of self-loathing to the festivities here when he says that David could, quote, live and love as you never could. He has to be referring to himself and his own sexuality in some small way. But now, yes, he goes overboard. He's going to fix all that and somehow evade his responsibility for his part in this. 
for fostering these feelings in these two. You're going to die. And he fires that pistol into the night sky, and then we wait. Rupert goes to sit by David's body, protecting and comforting him, too little too late. I do love that touch of sitting there with his hand on top of the chest. Philip says, they're coming, Brandon. Sits down to play the piano. Sirens in the distance. The end. Tell me again why people don't like this. I think there are just enough of those little things, the stage-bound part of it, Jimmy Stewart's personality or lack of it, if they perceive it that way. It's cold, I think, is the big thing. It is very clinical and precise and chilly and off-putting. They could have made this much pulpier. The story obviously has all those parts to it. But I think the people that don't enjoy it much, to them it just feels like an exercise. Whereas to me, that is absolutely not the case. I think I respond to it more and more and more with each viewing. Especially when I think about it as the flip side to these other Hitchcockian thrillers. In Rear Window... Jimmy Stewart's character essentially becomes morally justified in his voyeurism. For us, the audience in this, the killers are the more interesting characters. And at the same time, it is ugly and there is consequence. So do we become diminished almost in the viewing and the enjoyment and the appreciation? I certainly hope so. (laughs) I figured you'd say that. It's interesting to me where this falls in Hitchcock's timeline for all this stuff. It's easy to forget that this was his 40th film and how accomplished he was as a filmmaker at this point. And I feel like this clinical approach, this experimentation, this bit of exercise is celebratory, a response to being free from Selznick. And I think that something you said earlier is really interesting and it shows up here a ton And that is the lengths to which it goes to to conspire with the audience. That's what sets it apart from the rest of his catalog for me. That complicity you refer to and not patronizing us, it shows up in a more pronounced fashion here than in anything else he ever did. It still pulls a trick or two on us. That's never not going to happen with Hitchcock. But I can think of no other example of his where so much of what goes on is an inside joke between director and audience directly. And at the character's expense, so often. It is extremely uncommon for him to have it be such a two-way street with the viewer. Ultimately, he went back and forth about how he felt about the film, too. More ambivalence. But to me, it is a masterpiece. And speaking of masterpieces, how about you pull one out of the bag there for a recommendation? Maybe I will, and maybe I won't. Have I kept you on your toes long enough? (laughs) The suspense is killing me. I've chosen Gaslight from 1944, which was also adapted from another Patrick Hamilton play. Just a neat little aside for the folks in the Austin area or if you're traveling, many of Patrick Hamilton's papers are actually at the Ransom Center at UT Austin. But anyway, back to Gaslight. It was directed by George Cukor with Ingrid Bergman, Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton, and a very young Angela Lansbury. La la. Very much so. It's about a woman whose husband is slowly driving her insane. I'm a big fan of this one. It manages to sort of blend a little old dark house with foggy London with a neat murder mystery. Full disclosure, I did want to pick something else. And that was La Ceremonie because it would have been perfect, but I already mentioned it in the year-end episode. And how about your recommendation? My recommendation this time around is for The Celluloid Closet from 1995, 
directed by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, and based on Vito Russo's book of the same name. It's a documentary examining in great detail and using dozens of talking head interviews and illustrative enlightening clips the history of LGBTQ portrayal in movies, particularly Hollywood films. It was extremely pivotal in the 90s for spurring more examination and conversation about the subject and is, I think, directly responsible for a move away from dangerous and irresponsible stereotypes and seeing more diverse and accurate representation of LGBTQ characters on screen. Specifically, it features a discussion of rope and interviews with Farley Granger and the screenwriter Arthur Lawrence, among tons of other clips. Highly recommended. It was a big eye-opener for me when I saw it. I remember thoroughly enjoying it. I need to come back to it. It definitely holds up. It's an issue that we should never stop talking about. And if nothing else is a historical document, incredibly important. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Gaslight and the Celluloid Closet. And that brings us to the end of episode 74. First and foremost this week, we would like to say a special thanks to Jacqueline Ellis for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. As we mentioned at the top, if you would like to do the same, you can find that at patreon.com slash magiclantern. If you would like to just reach us via email, you can do that at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those places. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Allie and Adam at the podcast, So That's How It Ends. Eric Parkinson. Andy Wolverton. Christopher Owen. And Tim Lego. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. We would love it if you would leave us a rating or review via any of those services. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 